You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about eschatology. Some of you out there who aren't familiar, that could be a big word, and you wonder what it means. Well, it, it covers two different areas. One that we're not really talking about today is the more personalized eschatology, what happens to a person when they die. General eschatology deals with what's known as the end times, the final things. And this is something Christians usually have to face a lot of talk about because there is so much controversy, so much misunderstanding. And end times is always in the news. In fact, just this week, we've had that Trump announced that he was going to move the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And yes, I've already seen people out there Many of the claims where, there you go, Trump's the Antichrist, based on this. <laughs> and then, you know, on a more serious note, there are people who say, where, how can we believe Jesus when he was wrong about the time of his second coming? Which is an important question. Those of you who are familiar with the show know that my viewpoint is Orthodox Preterism, which we were beginning to discussion for. And sometime in the past year or so, I'd say, I found out that Brian Godawa had also come to that viewpoint. And now as he comes to that viewpoint, he's been writing a fictional series based on that viewpoint. A sort of historical fiction centered around the Roman Empire at the time of Paul and Jesus and everyone else. And he's also included in it the thought of Michael Heiser, who will be on our show, by the way, on December 30th talking about the Nephilim and Watchers and things of that sort. And I would say I'm not sold on that theory yet, but it's also not essential to Orthodox preterism. And even if you don't hold the theory, you can still enjoy the novels here. But who is Brian? Brian Godawa is an award-winning Hollywood screenwriter to end our wars, a controversial movie and culture blogger, Godawa.com, that's G-O-D-A-W-A, an internationally known teacher on faith, worldviews, and storytelling, Hollywood worldviews, Amazon best-selling author of biblical fiction, Chronicles of the Nephilim, and provocative theology, God Against the Gods. His obsession with God, movies, and worldviews results in theological storytelling that blows your mind while inspiring your soul. And he's not exaggerating. Well, <laughs> that last part, you'll have to be the judge of that here. But... Brian, you were here uh, on show earlier talking about Tyrant Rise of the Beast. Now you're back to talk about Remnant. Welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. Great to be here. Yeah. Now, if my audience doesn't remember you from last time, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, boy, I am 
am a Hollywood screenwriter uh, for many years. And oh, about um, six, seven years ago, I started writing some novels. And um, because of my introduction to Michael Heiser's material that you mentioned there, you know, and and basically, you know, a lot of the scholarly information that he was um, communicating sort of opened up my eyes to a, a, a at least a, a storyline, a theological storyline thread in the Bible that I had not really sort of seen before. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's, you know, the basic notion is Christ against the powers, which some people might know or be familiar with. It's called Christus Victor motif, you know, and the idea yeah. that Christ wars against the, the principalities and powers and sort of wins back the, uh, the their authority that they had over sinful mankind. And mm-hmm. as Messiah, he wins that authority back. And, and, um, Anyway, so that along with this notion of what I call the war of the seed, and uh, that's the seed of the serpent versus the seed of Eve going throughout the whole Old Testament. Well, anyway, I, you know, I, I started writing that series, and, and since then, you know, my novels have, have really sort of exploded, and they tend to dominate the top 10 of the biblical fiction category on Amazon, so that's, that's always exciting. And that series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, um, that told uh, about that stuff like the Watchers and Giants, all the all the places where they appear in the Bible, I was retelling those stories. And I realized when I ended the series, um, I ended it on Jesus. And you might say, what? Wait, there's no Watchers or Giants in Jesus' story. Uh, no, there isn't technically, but um, or shall I say, but technically I think there is. There isn't on the surface, but it, rather than going into all that, I, I'd still, I tried to sort of describe the theological supernatural aspect of Christ's ministry. Mm-hmm. And um, in the, in that series, I tried to draw back the curtain and show what might it look like with these different warring principalities and powers. You know, like Daniel talks about the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece, and mm-hmm. these, were, these were supernatural beings. And, you know, I don't know what it really looked like, and the Bible doesn't tell us much at all, <laughs> almost nothing, right? Just sort of hints at it here and there. So yeah, I had to be fictional and, and I that I applied that fictional element to the series, um, but I tried to be as close to, you know, as, stick to the Bible and stick to the theological truth as much as possible because mm-hmm. I'm a, I be, you know, I have a high view of scripture, I, I value it. So that was sort of my pr- premise. And I realized at the end of that series with the, the you know, I was telling about Jesus's ministry and I was talking about how he was, predicting about the coming destruction of the temple, you know, like in Matthew 24 and in a lot of his parables, right? And and that came out in that novel series. And I realized, oh, I, you know, the series was done because it sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it, that, that was its purpose from Noah, primeval, all the way to Jesus triumphant, these eight books. But I realized that there was still more to tell because I realized that the book of Revelation, which is one of the most supernatural books in the in the New Testament, right? I mean, there's a lot of miracles and stuff going on and spiritual warfare going on in book of Acts, I realize. But in terms of the imagery and stuff, Revelation is just loaded with it, you know? And I had always, always stayed away from that because I know about the controversy. And, and of course, my view of the book of Revelation is very different from the dominant view out there, which is the, if, if we can call it the left behind view, you know, this mm-hmm. idea of the, in our future, there's still going to be a rapture, a tribulation, an antichrist, a rebuilt temple, and, and you know, and, and a seven-year tribulation and all that kind of stuff. And I don't believe that because mm-hmm. I've, I've studied that. And, and, um, 
but I never thought of putting it in book form, but I realized, oh, this is the time because no one's really done that. You know, um, one guy did, but it didn't, it didn't do well. Hank Hanegraaff, I, it, you know, yeah. I don't know if he sold very much. It's, it's nobody really knows about the book series, but no one's done it in this way. And I realized this would be an exciting way. Oh, th- this is the other thing too. You know, I've, for many years, I've, I've, I believed in this what's called the preterist view, as you mentioned. And for those who aren't entirely clear, preterism is basically a Latin word that means the past. And the basic view is, is that either most or all of the last days prophecies, the end times prophecies have been fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And there are different variations. Some believe most are, some believe all are, you know, there's different varieties. I'm in the, in the partial preterist camp where I still believe there's some to, to, to take place. But the important thing about that is to note that, that it paints a very different picture and meaning and purpose behind these all these New Testament references to the last days and what does that mean? And it, it's tied more to the ending of the old covenant and the beginning uh, of the, you know, the consummation of the new covenant than, than it does to what most futurists believe it has to do with, which is the second coming, or like I said, this, it's really more looking to the Antichrist, the reign of Antichrist than anything. And um, so I thought, you know, I've written some books on it, some theological material, and, and, and a lot of writers have written on on this viewpoint. Gary DeMar, Ken Gentry, these are some very respectable uh, theologians and such. Uh, but it's still controversial, and I still get hate mail and still get uh, accused of being a heretic. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, you know what? The most powerful way, I think, to communicate theology is through narrative story, because I think that while there's many of us who do like doing the deep theological books and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. many Christians don't. They, most of them don't. And, and uh, you know, that could be a, a criticism, but nevertheless, that's the way it is. And I just feel like, you know what? I can see theology can become abstract, but if you can embody it in a story, it really sort of, I don't know, it it puts flesh on the abstract bones in a way that nothing else can. And I think that it hits home with people much, much deeper because it's C.S. sort of like Lewis they- watch for dragons. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. And and I think just the embodiment of theology through story mm-hmm. is so powerful and uh, it, it sort of, it, it makes sense. It's like, oh, now I can see how in their time period through their eyes, they might have seen it. And that's that was my goal of writing Chronicles of the Apocalypse. So the Chronicles of the Apocalypse is going to be a four novel series about the book of Revelation, you know, being fulfilled in the first century. But my goal is, is to capture that world where John wrote the wrote the book of Revelation, wrote the letter, right? And where after Paul got executed and and the and and the um uh, the Roman army or the Jewish revolt rose up in in Israel, and Nero sent the Roman armies headed by Vespasian and Titus to quench the revolt and put it down. And they ended up wiping out all of all of the territory of Israel and destroying the city and temple. And and this is such a significant event that many Christians don't know about. Mm-hmm. So I want to tell that story in all its all its historical veracity and all its historical truth, but also try to capture that world through the eyes of a Jew and a Christian and a Roman and 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 show how the ancient Jewish mindset would have understood these prophetic uh uh you know um 
images that the the apostle John wrote about and how they would have been applied to them and that's and and so far it's it's going well and so the first book like you mentioned was tyrant that was about the the rise of nero and I believe Nero was the beast of Revelation, mm-hmm. uh, or w- one aspect of the beast of Revelation, you know. And that was the story that, you know, it, I start with the the great fire of Rome, and I, I show how the protagonist of the story is a Roman prefect who's who has a um, Jewish doctor, personal doctor, and a Christian slave. And he's been tasked by Nero to go find this subversive letter he's heard about that promotes assassination of the emperor and the end of the world. And of course, it's the letter of Revelation. So they go on this journey. Meanwhile, uh, you know, Nero's persecuting Christians, throwing them to the lions. And I try, I try to uncover the historical facts of what really happened back then. And it's really quite shocking, actually. So yeah, that was the book of the, the first book of Tyrant. And now the next book is out. And it's called Remnant, Rescue of the Elect. And it picks up where it left off, where our heroes now finally find the Apostle John, and they learn a little bit more what that letter is about, and they realize it's not what they thought it was, which is, you know, I, won't, I won't reveal the, 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 the twists, but um, then they realize that this letter has to do with um, not a destruction of, of Rome, but a destruction of Israel and specifically Jerusalem. And so they go to Jerusalem because they realize they got to get this letter to the Christians because God's wrath is coming down upon the city. And it's the wrath for them rejecting Messiah, right? As well as the destruction of the old covenant. And so they want to tell the Christians, you know, in Israel and particularly in the city of Jerusalem, get out. But the problem is when they get there, the Christians are still infected by a lot of the Judaizers there, and they're still clinging to Torah, and they think that God's going to protect the temple, right? So they've got to persuade these Christians, no, this letter is 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 authentic. It's from the Apostle John, get out of the city uh, before the Roman armies come. Meanwhile, the Roman armies are descending upon the city, and that's sort of what the story remnant is about, because I believe that the remnant are the true believers within Israel. And the remnant in the first century would be the Christian Jewish true believers in Jesus. So mm-hmm. they were the remnant of God while he was gonna destroy the rest of the, of the nation. And that remnant is ultimately what I think the 144,000 are in the mm-hmm. book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to go back to what you said at the very beginning here. And can you know you, I'm, I'm curious, did you, Become a Christian and then go to Hollywood, or did you go to Hollywood first and you became a Christian there? <laughs> I was a Christian first and uh, then went to Hollywood. Yeah, and I, my goal was to, you know, I, I wanted to just make normal Hollywood movies, not like Christian. I, I don't, you know, I don't really like Christian movies. Um, uh, not because, <laughs> I mean, just because the genre is is too preachy to me, and and the the genre conventions I don't necessarily like. I don't think it's wrong to have them or anything like that. I think that it's a genre for a particular audience. It's just not my my desire. But um, over time, I've become a, more of an independent filmmaker, not so much in the studio Hollywood studio system. So I've made independent films, and the truth is, is I, I'm okay. I love a good story. I don't care what it is. I, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, would you ever write Bible stories? I'd say, are you crazy? I don't want to do that. You've got the Bible. Just read the Bible, right? Uh, but um, just sort of out of necessity and, and the, sort of the fact that I've studied theology and apologetics and eschatology for so many years. 
And I just sort of, so many Christians don't aren't interested in that deeper stuff, um, mm-hmm. except for those listeners of deeper waters. Um, <laughs> but uh, most of the people in my life just didn't. So I didn't have a uh, an avenue to 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 sort of, you know, um, share that with other people. I, I taught a little bit here and there, but my point is is that. Uh, when I started writing the novels, I realized, wow, I can incorporate all this theology I've studied and make it more entertaining and interesting mm-hmm. to pick Christians. So I've gone with it because I like a good story. So now I'm writing Bible stories that I never thought I would have written, but it's been an exciting um, opening opportunity because I've realized how fun and cool it really is. And mm-hmm. and I changed my mind about that, you know? And I'm gathering also, based on what you said, that like me, when you go out and you tell people that you're an orthodox preterist, as it were. There is a whole lot of misunderstanding from that point on about, okay, what is it that you really believe and all these assertions that are made? And yes, the charge of heresy does get thrown around too easily. And honestly, I think it's because a lot of people just haven't taken the time to understand Orthodox preterism. I mean, it's it's a position I never thought I'd hold. I used to argue against it until I actually did something that, you know, it's not allowable to do. I actually sat down with some preterists and asked them some questions about what they believe. Well, I never understood this. Yeah, yeah, I find the same thing, Nick. I, It's amazing how they don't they don't know what it really is. And, mm. and what they do is, most Christians now— Twenty years ago, no, no, most no Christians knew about it, and so mm. you'd talk about it, and it would just—they wouldn't know what to say because they had mm. never heard it before. And mm. you could, you know, you could crush them with exegesis, right? Because they have not been familiar. But now, I think more Christians have been familiar because the dispensationalists and the premillennialists, the left behinders, um, they've now realized the threat that preterism gives to their system because. Uh, their systems are continuing to be proven wrong over and over again, and preterism is growing now. So now they, they're trying to debunk it, so they write a bunch of papers out to try to debunk it. And Christians are just – they're so obsessed with this end-time stuff, they don't want to take the time to look into other views. They think they got the right view, so they'll just read some view debunking it, and they think they understand it, but they don't. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I'm I'm almost never met someone who really uh, – who has accurately – understood what preterism is. Just today I was looking at um, one of the comments on on my Amazon page for for one of my books and they completely said that I'm teaching the exact opposite of what I was teaching. Like they were saying, you know, he believes all all prophecy has been fulfilled and there is no second coming of Christ and, you know, all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, that's the opposite. You clearly did not read the book and you're just taking, you're parroting this sort of hate speech that Mm -hmm. you got from other futurist teachers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is just ruining the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's bringing this, polarity and hostility that is reflective of the greater, uh, you know, the society at large, the secular society. We're no better than them, you know? Yeah. And we should be. We should be able to say, look, there's there's several of these views of the end times and and godly orthodox men through history have, have believed all of them. So mm-hmm. let's get down to exegesis and talking about the facts rather than, you know, smearing and hating and uh, because that's what happens to yeah. to a, a lot of us. But I hope that I'm, I've learned the lesson and that I don't do the same thing to others, you know. Sometimes I, I feel like I want to because sometimes if you look at what some of these Christians do believe, if you, if you think, if you play out the ramifications of it, 
you know, um, some of them, uh, the more extreme cases of these futurists that believe that, you know, Israel's God's chosen people, period, and not the church of Jesus Christ. You, if you take that out to this logical conclusion, it's a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a denial that Messiah came and actually uh, brought the Jew and Gentile together as one. And, and, but I'm trying hard not to uh, throw counter accusations and just reason on an on a intelligent level. And calm. Yeah, I uh, I live here in America, and I've lived here all my life, and I've lived in three different states, except for a state of confusion, of course. And <laughs> those states are Tennessee, North Carolina, and now Georgia. And that tells you I've lived all my life in the South. <laughs> and down here in the South, dispensationalism is pretty much the gospel. And... So I, I've had to encounter this, and I'll make clear, I don't have anything against futurists as futurists. I'm married to a futurist. But <laughs> at the same time, sometimes what we'll do for fun is we'll turn on YouTube, and we'll watch a lot of these end times predictions and such with all these prophecy experts and such. And I, I've told you before, I wish I could be a prophecy expert. I really do. Because you can go out there, you can say whatever you want, you can yeah. be entirely wrong, you can yep. write a bestseller, you'll be recognized as an expert, you can be verifiably <laughs> wrong, and you still get all the perks. Yeah, yep, I, so I agree. <laughs> and we'll watch these videos with all these people talking about all these dreams they have and all these experiences, and it tells them, Jesus is coming soon, and Looking at all the hysteria, I mean, I, I suspect for too long we'll probably turn some on and see all this talk about, like I said, we'll start Trump naming Jerusalem the capital and all the oh, yeah. end time speculation. It's going to begin right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and the irony is, is, you know, again, that's, uh, I think. <sighs> we need to learn from history, you know, and I think that that's one of the keys and that's probably one of the reasons why we keep falling into these traps because Mm. people don't read history. They don't catch, you know, they don't look into it, you know, just 35 years ago when I was in college and such, and I was into Hal Lindsey, you know, just go back and look at on YouTube. They have the full documentary of the late great planet earth by Hal Lindsey narrated with the awesome scary voice of Orson Welles, right? Mm. So like you couldn't get anything better, cooler than that, right? Mm. Go to YouTube now and watch it, people. And you will, it is laughable. But the point is, that's exactly what they're doing now. Yeah. It's the same thing, only they're applying it all to different stuff. And, and they've always been wrong over and over again. And I think it's time to start looking at ourselves and saying, maybe it's not the individual interpretations that are wrong. Maybe it's the system that's wrong because it it's always produced, all, all the different varieties of versions, they're all wrong. So I would just say, so at least consider, look into this preterist viewpoint, find some responsible writers like Ken Gentry, Gary DeMar, or Brian Godawa, and, you know, read their stuff and because you might be surprised. Yeah. And one of the things about that, this, that, this um, viewpoint that drew me into it was precisely this time period of uh-huh. AD 33 uh-huh. to AD 70. No Christian taught me anything about that. Right. And, and, and I think it's just fascinating history because it's this huge war and it, it, it changed history for both Christianity and, and Jew, uh, uh, 
Judaism, right? And and they don't they just avoided it. They just don't teach it. And so these preterist guys were talking about that, and they're quoting from you know Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian who who went through the wars of the Jews and wrote about it in the book by the same name. And and that's what I'm drawing from. I'm literally drawing from Josephus and his account of this war, and 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 how it all played out. And I'm integrating it with Revelation. And like you said earlier, I'm also trying to show this what might the spiritual world look like? You know, what's the angel of the abyss, mm. the angel of the abyss and all this fantastic imagery in Revelation. I, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I try to just say, okay, here's, here's one way of seeing it that might make sense of the theology of it all. Mm. And um, so far people are just amazed because I'm also footnoting the novel. That's not something you normally want to do. Uh, most people, most everybody will will argue against doing that. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I did was because I'm telling this fantastic story and it's exciting. I've got action adventure, lots of battles and romance and all kinds of stuff in it while it's going on in the midst of this war. Um, but I knew that Christians are going to read this and go, what is this? What really happened? Come on, prove it, you know, that kind of a thing. So I went ahead and footnoted every novel so that if you're reading uh, you can, um, and, and you're really questioning something, you can check up the footnote. And I don't just give a citation of a book. That's technical mumbo yeah. jumbo. I actually give chunks of scholarly arguments and paragraphs to explain where I got this historical fact from or where I got this theological interpretation. So, and, and by the way, a lot, you're going to see a lot of, a lot of quoting from Ken Gentry and even his new commentary that's not out yet on the book of Revelation. It's called The Divorce of Israel. And um, it's a two volume commentary on Revelation that comes out early next year. And um, I'm a friend of his. And so he, he allowed me to, to see, and I, and I asked him, you know, can I use it for research for the novels, you know? And so he let me um, uh, go through it and that was tremendously helpful. So I'm trying to, you know, he's sort of my scholar of uh, my, my model of the scholar that I'm following. And um, I'm kind of putting flesh on that viewpoint. Yeah. You know, let me ask a question also about the viewpoint here that someone sent me one to ask. It says, what about how Matthew 24, 34, how can... Matthew 24, 30, Jesus coming on the clouds, come before verse 34. If verse 34 is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, yet Jesus still hasn't come on the clouds. Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, first of all, I think that the Matthew 24 is a, it's a complex prophecy, meaning it's a complex of events that occurs and they're not necessarily, it's generally chronological, but not necessarily. You know, everything doesn't happen exactly in the order he says. It doesn't have to because he's just saying these are the things that will happen, right? Mm -hmm. But I still think that he says immediately after the tribulation of those days. And if, if you understand the tribulation as I do, as referring to this first century tribulation, which I might, I, I wanna point out right, right up front, you know, one of the things about the Protestant view is there's there's a lot of things that are quite explicit in the Bible that we just missed. And when you see it, you sort of go, whoa. So, you know, this tribulation, when is this tribulation? This great, the tribulation, certainly that's going to be something in the future. Well, guess what? The book of Revelation, chapter one, verse nine, John, the apostle writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, was on the island of Patmos, et cetera, et cetera. 
So right there in the book of Revelation, he's saying the tribulation that, you, that you've heard about, that Jesus said, I'm in the middle of it right now with you. So mm-hmm. if the Bible itself says it's going on, for you to deny that is to not deny the Bible, right? So that's, that's, that would be my argument. So when Jesus is talking about the tribulation, you know, uh, in all those previous verses, I think it has to do a lot with Nero's persecution of the Jews and the Jewish persecution of the, I'm sorry, Nero's and, the, and, and Israel, how can I put it? The Jewish nation's persecution of Christians. I think it's a mixture of all that stuff. And then it says immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will give it, give its light, not give its light, and the stars fall from heaven and the powers will be shaken. And, and this is a common um, metaphor in Old Testament prophecy and I, that I write about in my other book, End Times Bible Prophecy, where I explain that this is a common metaphor that's used of the fall of socio-political powers. Mm-hmm. So in other words, when God, uh, you know, in Isaiah 13, I think it is, you know, God yeah. talks about the sun, moon, and stars, you know, stars falling and the sun going dark and all that stuff. He's talking about Babylon. And so, in other words, he's saying when Babylon, and he's going to judge Babylon. So, when God judges the city of Babylon or the nation of Babylon, uh, he describes it as the sun going dark and the stars falling from the sky. It's the same language. And obviously, that didn't happen in the past when, when that occurred, uh, you know, in the 500s BC or whatever. Well, not um, in a literalistic sense. Yeah, exactly. In a little sense. So we see, oh, this is a, this is a metaphorical description of the powers falling and, and particularly the, you know, uh, it could be a national power. It could be, uh, the, is the power of Israel itself, you know? And so I think in this case, he's talking about a judgment on Israel because in the beginning of Matthew 24, he says, you know, um, not one stone will be left, um, on another of this temple because of your rejection of Messiah. And so this is what it's referring to. And, and so then he says, you know, then will appear the sign of the son of man. And, and I think that the whole point of that passage is saying there's a sign that's going to occur that proves to you Jews who rejected me that I am the son of man in, in, in heaven seated at the right hand of God in power and glory. That's why Stephen was was uh, stoned, right? And he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand in power and glory. And that's something that the Jews rejected. They said, no, the Messiah would do that. And Jesus isn't the Messiah, right? So this is basically Jesus saying, the sign that I am Messiah, that is I am on heaven in heaven with power and great glory mm-hmm. is going to be all these events, this culminating in ultimately the destruction of the temple. And so the the phrase when he says coming on the clouds of heaven that's, you know, again, we have our modern mindset. We automatically assume this is literal. He's surfing on a cumulus nimbus, you know, with his horses and stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, when you look in um, previous passages in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, this idea of coming on the clouds is a very common phrase that God uses to describe every time that he judges a city, a nation, or a people. When he judges I- Egypt, he describes it as coming on the clouds. When he judges Babylon, he describes it as um, coming on the clouds. So this this is another metaphor, not of some literal coming in the clouds, but it is is basically saying when God uses pagan armies to judge another tribe, and particularly in this case, Israel, mm-hmm. he's using pagan armies. That is him coming on the clouds of heaven. It's not literal, but it's obviously spiritual or metaphorical. So in other, but the problem is, is this whole event 
that occurred at that time was a three and a half year event. So when you know Titus ended up coming in, they had to destroy the surrounding territories in Israel before they came upon the uh, Jerusalem. But it was a three and a half year uh, event which culminated in a five-month siege of Jerusalem until it was finally destroyed. So that's not a one singular moment in time. This is describing that event that occurred over the three-and-a-half-year period, if that makes sense. You know, at the end of the book of Daniel, I mean, the events that take place take place like a few hundred years later or so, and Daniel is told to seal up the book because the time is far off. At the end of the book of Revelation, John is told not to seal the book because the time is near. So yes. by this time, I mean that a time that's far off can be a few hundred years or so. A time that's near can be 2,000 years plus. Right. So if the angel, so according to what you said, that's this is another one of those amazingly clear passages in Scripture that you're referencing, mm-hmm. which, of course— um, is uh, let's see here. That is Revelation twenty two ten that you're talking about mm-hmm. in Revelation, where he says, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near." So basically, you just proved biblically that when when a prophecy is going to be fulfilled hundreds or thousands of years later, he says to seal up the book. So when it says, "Do not seal up the book because the time is near," well, then obviously it's not two thousand years later, like the futurists say. So you really can't. Uh, make uh, Book of Revelation apply to thousands of years later uh, and be consistent biblically, you know, with exegesis. That's an excellent point to make. And and I think that, and there's more of these, you know, I mean, uh, one of my favorite, which which I like to to refer to because it, it shocks a lot of people who don't know. In fact, I, I was on a, I was on another show with a futurist who's an open-minded guy, Rob Skiba. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a little wacky. He's a, one of those flat earth guys. And I told him he's wacky. So, uh, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not saying anything I haven't told him, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, he's a, you know, he's a sharp guy and, and he's willing to listen to other viewpoints. And it was interesting because I talked, talked to him about this passage and he never under- he never saw this before. And that is revelation 17, Versus, um, oh, it's like nine through eleven, right? And and this is what it says. You know, John's writing about this vision, and and you know, we're all familiar with the great harlot who sits on the seven-headed dragon, right? And everybody, no matter what you interpret that as, everybody agrees that's symbolic, right? So that's right. that's okay. Just what does it mean? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then John all of a sudden comes out of the vision, and and the angel explains some things to him. I'm sorry, he explains some things to us so that we can understand the symbols better. And this is what he said he, in um, Revelation 17, uh, verse 9, it starts. He says, it's calls for wisdom. The seven heads of that dragon are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And pretty much universally, everyone thinks that's Rome because Rome was the city on seven hills. And whenever you said that seven mountains, everyone in the ancient world automatically knew it was Rome, right? And, um, and then it says, but they are also... Seven kings. Oh, okay. So the imagery is very fluid here. In one sense, they represent the seven mountains, which is probably Rome, the Roman Empire, but they're also seven kings. And of course, the word for king in Greek that the Jew used was the word for Caesar. Um, and, and so five have fallen. He, he goes on to say seven kings, five of whom have fallen, which probably means death, right? Obviously. Mm-hmm. One now is, or one is, in the Greek, it means one now is, 
The other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So here you have a statement in Revelation itself where he's placing it historically for us. Symbolically, yes, but it, 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 he's, he's saying some things that we can look for and find what they mean. And it just so happens that in that Nero was the sixth king of Rome or the sixth Caesar. And John is saying five have fallen, one now is, the sixth one now is, which would be Nero. And that's, of course, exactly when, you know, um, when I would argue uh, the, uh, John was writing Revelation and all these events were go- going on. And then he says, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Well, it just so happens historically that the Caesar after Nero was Galba. And he only reigned six months because Rome was in the midst of a, a civil war. So, wow, does that not fit history perfectly? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but how if John's talking about one king now is in my day, who else could he be talking about? You have mm-hmm. to, it has to take place in his day. And um, many people, when you explain that to them, they, they kind of go, oh, wow, never heard that before, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and there's more to it than that, but those are some of the more explicit cases. And that's why I, you know, my novel, Tyrant Rise of the Beast, I pray, I basically bring out all these arguments of why I think Nero is it was the the beast, uh, or at least you know the single beast. The beast had multiple ent- uh, identifications, right? In, in one sense, the beast is the whole empire. Sometimes it's just the Caesar, right? And sometimes it's he he represents the it's the collective versus the individual, right? right. But the point is, is I bring out all that stuff in Tyrant, but I incorporate it into the story in a way that you know you see it coming coming together in the ancient world of the first century. And that's what makes it more exciting than, in some ways, me just sitting here explaining it to you. You can see how Nero's the sixth king and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's kind of fun. Now, some people also say, well, but aren't you taking sort of a liberal tendency of a text and allegorizing it and spiritualizing it away? <laughs> yeah, I am. I am spiritualizing, uh, but that's not liberal. And And here's... That's another thing I wrote about in my book, End Times Bible Prophecy. I wrote a whole chapter on this literalism as being one of the most destructive elements. Hyperliteralism is what I call it, um, meaning everything in the Bible has to be literal. And the problem is, is that I would argue for Revelation, you're actually being literal. Uh, I'm sorry, you're actually being liberal if you take it uh, more primarily as his, uh, uh, if you take it more primarily literal rather than symbolic. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is, again, I'm a, I believe that the Bible should be the basis of our beliefs as Christians, right? We don't right. change the interpretation of the Bible to meet our theology. We do it the other way around. Well, guess what? Book of Revelation, it says very explicitly, the very first verse, he's telling us right up front, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. There it is again, that soon. Mm-hmm. It says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. That in, in Greek, that phrase, he made it known, is actually the word uh, from which we get our word semiotics, which is the study of symbols. So he's basically saying he symbolized it by sending his angel to his servant, John. So when when the biblical text itself, when God tells us this is symbolism, then you've got to prioritize symbolism over literalism. That's not to say that there aren't some things that are, are literal in there, of course, but the primary emphasis is symbolism. So that's why I would say it's actually liberalism to take it literally because you're going against what the Bible tells you to do. Yeah, we also should point out that this stuff, it, it's, 
It is indeed a secondary doctrine. I mean, as long as you remain yep. within repair, with the perimeters of orthodoxy, okay. But it does have some huge project significance. I mean, someone like Bertrand Russell, for instance, did in fact point to Jesus being wrong about the time of his second coming as a reason for not being a Christian. Many atheists and skeptics do that today. And even C.S. Lewis looked at Matthew 24, 34, the this generation shall not pass away passage and said, this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Yeah, and I think that the more educated, uh, we have a much more educated, atheistic, skeptical world now than than even in the past. And Bart Ehrman has said that, as well as Christopher Hitchens, before he died, made the same arguments that, you know, look, Jesus said he, he was coming within their lifetime, and uh, he didn't. And of course, um, you're right. I, I think that that, because then what happens is, um, the futurists who who try to maintain their future scenario, they have to do linguistic gymnastics and twisting of words like must soon take place, isn't really soon, it could mean take place at any moment. That's explicitly and, said and left behind even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, so you have to literally, again, these are the same people who say we must take the Bible literally, but then all of a sudden when these passages don't fit them, they don't take them literally. Mm. Must soon take place doesn't really mean soon take place. It could mean it will happen quickly sometime thousands of years in the future. Well, that's ridiculous because that's not the context and that's not the meaning of the phrase or the mm. Greek at all. Right. And so consequently, you're right. I think that um, that's a whole other angle that I think uh, is starting to actually you know, make itself very visible in today's world because uh, the skeptics are more educated about this material and they're recognizing that, yeah, yeah, they're, the Bible really does speak about Jesus coming and uh, the parousia is what the Greek word is. And, and, um, uh, and, 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 and they, but they assume that that means the physical second return of Christ or whatever, the second mm -hmm. coming. But really what most of these passages are talking about is what I would call a judgment coming of Christ. It's not his physical return that is yet in the deep future, mm -hmm. but it's a cloud coming. And the cloud coming is not his literal presence, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a spiritual presence. Oh, that's the other thing you mentioned, the spiritualizing. You know, you get the you get the accusation of spiritualizing, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. If the Bible itself spiritualizes, then we should spiritualize, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, um, you know, let me let me just give another one of these examples of, um, I, I love this coming on the clouds thing, you know. It's just so powerful to me that, that people miss these, uh-oh. Okay, so so you look up, you, you look in the text and um, in the Old Testament, it's very common. Let me read you just a couple examples. Um, uh, okay, I mentioned this earlier in, 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 in Jeremiah 4, all right? It says, behold, Yahweh comes like clouds, uh, Jeremiah 4, 13 and 16. His chariots like the whirlwind uh, warn the nations he is coming, announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. So if you read Jeremiah, it's talking about Babylon coming against Israel in 586 BC, which was a historical event. And, right. it's, and, and he's saying, Yahweh is coming on the clouds to judge mm -hmm. Israel. But who was actually coming? The besiegers from a distant land, which were Babylonians. So literally he's saying, the Babylonians coming to destroy Jerusalem is God coming on the clouds. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, there's many, many cases, you know, in Nineveh, uh, Nineveh was going to be destroyed by Babylon. So the prophet Nahum in, in chapter one, verses two and three, he says, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. This will be, in, he's talking about Nineveh. His way is a whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And that's a description of Babylonians coming and destroying Nineveh, mm-hmm. you know, and then even Egypt. In Ezekiel 30, verse 3, it says, The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt. Thus, the Lord God says, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt. How? By, By literally coming on the clouds? No, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is a pattern that God uses, this notion that when he uses a nut, God sovereignly uses pagan nations to judge other nations, right? And he describes that as a day of clouds and storm and he comes on the clouds. So so my point here is if God himself is spiritualizing it, then of course we have to spiritualize it. It's not it's not the literal thing. It's he's describing what's happening spiritually. So, yeah, I think this is a very this is an example of I wrote a whole chapter on the poetry of Old Testament prophecy and how there's so much poetry going on there that we are fools if we take it literally, especially especially in the Old Testament. But once you once you study the Old Testament prophecy, you start to see it's the same language that they're using in the New Testament. You know, the 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 the, the sky rolling up like a scroll, the sun and the moon, and all that kind of stuff. It's the same language. So this is the kind of language God uses to describe the spiritual reality behind the historical event. And that's that's important for us to remember. Yeah, I like to go to, I believe it's Second Samuel twenty-two, might be twenty-three, where David has this poem that he writes about God delivering him from his enemies and his distress. And he says, Yahweh came from his temple in the heavens, came riding on his angel, shooting his arrows at the enemies. And he's like, you can go all you want for the life of David. You will never see a power in the life of David where Yahweh hitches up on Gabriel and comes flying out green arrow style <laughs> shooting at his enemies. It's not there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and it also says smoke came out, came out of God's nostrils, yeah. fire from his mouth, coals mm. were kindled. He bowed the heavens and came down with thick darkness under his feet. Mm. And you're right. He's simply describing how he was delivered from Saul. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, uh, how, how how is that possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, of course, again, it's it's pretty clear that that this is all metaphorical spiritual language of, you know, God's deliverance and such. And there's tons of these too. I mean, there's this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I, I think we need to, I think probably there's a revival right now, I think in the, uh, I, I use the word loosely, there's a revival of an interest in the ancient Near Eastern and ancient Hebrew context of the Bible that we have not had. You know, we have tended to sort of just read it through our own cultural culture eyes, culture's eyes. But now there's a lot of revelation about what these symbols meant in the ancient world to the Jews as well as the Jews' uh, neighbors around them, right? Yeah. And I think that this this uh, rise of, of, of education in that area is what's causing people to really stand up and say, you know what, uh, these, these end times, these last days prophecies uh, in the New Testament, they're not literal. 
But I think even more importantly, you know, one another classic example of that, which I think is very important, was, you know, the whole heart of Matthew 24, where Matt, uh, you know, Jesus says his disciples. First of all, he says, you know, the temple is going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. Uh, and then in verse three, you know, his disciples ask him, you know, when will these things be in the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Mm-hmm. And this is another one of those things where we we read this with our modern mind and we think, well, the end of the age, that must be the end of the world. But it, it's not. It actually means the end of the old covenant age because the new covenant was coming in with Messiah. And and, and I'm, I'm not just making that up. There's tons of passages that support that all throughout the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, one just off the top of my head in Hebrews chapter nine, the writer is writing to the Jewish Christians and he says, uh, he's talking about Christ suffered once for all since, you know, uh, since the foundation of the world. And he says, he has appeared once for all, Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah has appeared once for all. When? At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In Hebrews one, he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his, in his Messiah. So they believe they were in the last days, the end of the ages. So it clearly was not the, the thousands of years future. So, so what you understand that to mean is in their mindset, they meant the last days of the old covenant, of the old order, the old way of things. Why? Because the new way of things was coming, the new covenant in Christ that sacrifice of Christ brought an end to, of the age of the old covenant. So that's sort of the the picture that I think we miss because we're we impose our own uh, cultural prejudice upon the text rather than trying to understand what did it mean in their context. If you've been familiar with my stuff for any time, one of the things you know is I am very big about this whole thing about understanding the socio-cultural context. Yeah. Of it, instead of reading Westernism into the text, I mean, we read our modern individualism into the text and say, well, they must have been just like us. And they know. Yeah. No, they weren't. And I, I do agree with you. There's a lot more of that going on. We have a whole lot more people bringing the ideas of honor and shame to our mm-hmm. studies of the Bible than before. And I yeah. think it's just excellent to see what's going on. Well, you know, to bring this back to my novels too, because I, again, I think in some ways my, you know, the, my, I think that's the best expression of what I'm, I'm trying to get here. I try to capture that ancient world. And so my protagonists go through many things, you know, they're, they're, they're hiding out in the catacombs in Rome, you know, they're engaging in various situations of the Roman culture, as well as the Jewish culture. To, so I try to show uh, show these things and how they thought by embodying them in the characters in the story, you know? So we've got, you know, I mean, I, I even show, uh, I go into Titus and, and, and his context and how he had a, um, an adulterous love affair with Bernike, who was the sister of Agrippa, who was the king of, you know, at the time he was, um, you know, the Herodian ruler over in, in Israel. And so, and all the implications that that had to do with their cultures, right, and their world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also try to show, oh, you know, how, how the Christians were treated by the Jews, you know, in Israel uh, and in, in Jerusalem in particular, and how, you know, we read about some of these things in the book of Acts, but um, it's they still had that problem, you know, Jews were still rejecting Christians. And, and yet there's this subtlety that's going on where in the very beginning, when Jews first started believing Jesus, right, they were not they were not seen as separate it was 
Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. So the Roman, the Roman world didn't see them differently. And here's what's very interesting was they saw them as just a sect of Judaism and Rome had given special privilege to the Jews. So, uh, and, and there were, and actually Nero, Nero's wife, Popea, was possibly a, a, a Jew certainly very favorable to the Jews. And Nero also had a favorite mime, literally a theater mime, because he was into the arts, right? And mm-hmm. uh, Alaturius was his name, and he was a Jew. And Josephus, that Jewish historian, actually traveled to Rome and was there at the Great Fire. And so I believe it's very possible that what possibly happened was Josephus may have had influence on Nero to describe to him, no, the Christians are different from the Jews. The Christians are talking about this coming judgment and fire, right? Which we, you and I have been talking about, mm-hmm. that's the destruction of Jerusalem, right? But, but uh, Josephus, I believe, and I, I, t- I tell this story in my books, that he probably influenced Nero to see that difference between the Jews and the Christians, which allowed Nero to then persecute the Christians while keeping the Jews protected, see? And -hmm. so these are the kind of cultural things that were going on so that by that, you know, even in the midst of the, the revolt of the Jews, there was some division between Christians and Jews, but they're still sort of mixed. And one of the reasons why is because you know, the, the temple was still standing. We read about in the book of Acts that, you know, Paul and some of the apostles still went to temple, still followed temple rituals, right? And yet, even though Christ, the new covenant had come and these things were no were, were dead in a very spiritual sense, right? But because the old covenant temple uh, was still standing, there it was sort of what I call a transition period, right? And so it's a messy time period, a historical time period, but this is why the Jews and Christians were still not separated because the Christians were still respecting those uh, temple rituals and such. And I think this is one of the reasons why God destroyed it was <laughs> he wanted to, he, he said spiritually that Christ's death on the cross brought the new covenant, which ended the, you know, the sacrifices, right? But the sacrifices were still going on. So God is not a God of abstraction. He always does you know, enter, he, 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 he vindicates historically what he does spiritually. So, so the AD 70 destruction of the temple is God's historical vindication that the old covenant is, is gone by literally destroying the incarnation of the old covenant, which is the temple in the holy city. And that destruction is God saying it's over. And it's interesting because historically from that period on, the Judaism uh, you know, many, you know, many, uh, two thirds of the Jews were killed in in that in that big conflagration, and and uh, hundreds of thousands were taken off into slavery. So Jewish nation virtually was gone for a while. But those who still were there regathered, and some of the scholars regathered in Jamnia, and they actually recast Judaism into what is now uh, modern rabbinic Judaism, which is not biblical Jew- Judaism. So it's very interesting mm-hmm. that once they lost the temple, they recreated Judaism in a new form and it, it, without biblical support at all. But n- basically, Judaism was transformed by that. But but Christianity was too, because once the temple was destroyed, the Christians finally were free from this earthly 
representation of the old covenant and they could live the new covenant out fully, which is to go into all the world. And from that point of the destruction on, Christianity just exploded on the earth. So I find it fascinating. And again, that's part of the story I'm telling because I want to show how that all worked out and, and how the Christians actually did. Many of them did escape, not all, you know, some some people did get killed in the, in this massive conflict, but but a lot of the Christians did leave Jerusalem and they went to the mountain city of Pella. You know, uh, Eusebius, the church historian tells us about this and they escaped to that Pella, which what Pella was one of the cities of the Decapolis, which was a Greek series. So they mostly were Greeks there, but they had a civil war with the Jews and the whole, they killed each other. There's almost no one left at, Deca- at Pella, right? So that was sort of open for the Christians to go and, and, and escape. And, and so I tell that story and I show them doing that and, you know, uh, with our hero in, in tow, um, trying to, uh, to rescue the people they can. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's so important spiritually, but also historically. And uh, my goal is, is to be accurate as possible with these novels. And it's certainly true that this stuff isn't talking about. I grew up in the church all my life and we never heard about this time period. We are, we're so focused on our time period, but we missed what happened in the past. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's shocking because um, when you learn this stuff and more and more people are, and it's, and they're loving it because it's truly fascinating and the connections are there. This is not just some uh, obscure uh, theological uh, wacky idea. It's like, no, it's rooted in a lot of exegesis and Christians are, cannot uh, the futurists are not going to be able to hold it down anymore because people are discovering it and discovering these connections that are really profound. And it does change the whole picture. So so basically, my my novel series is sort of showing how the the book of Revelation is not this prediction of the second coming of Christ after a tribulation, rapture, antichrist, and all that, but rather, it is the description of this coming judgment on Jerusalem, and it's a twofold purpose of Revelation. It's it's God saying this. He's saying, I am going to historically validate the um, the new covenant. I'm going to destroy the old covenant incarnation because the new covenant has arrived. So he's going to consummate what he inaugurated at the cross, right? If that makes sense, that transition period. And secondly, it's to judge those who crucified him, to judge the Jews who killed Messiah and rejected him. And by the way, this this is described in Revelation. Again, the very beginning of Revelation, he tells us, what's the purpose of this? Revelation 1 verse 7, he says, behold, he's coming with the clouds. There it is again, the judgment language. He's coming to judge. And he says, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Mm -hmm. That's the crucifixion. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. Now, many people see that and they go, Oh, you know, they read Revelation as that this is a destruction of the earth, but they're missing, they're, there's something going on here that's a poor translation. And I, 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 it really just proves that even translators are biased because mm-hmm. the translators of Revelation were futurists. And so um, let me explain this. So, so John is quoting Zechariah, actually. And the passage he's quoting is, let me get this, Zechariah 12, verse 10. Um, and so when, when we read this in Revelation, we see, oh, okay, uh, those who pierced him. All right, well, who pierced him? The Jew, the Romans did, right? The Romans crucified him, right? Well, the, the apostles in the book of Acts says, yes, the Romans did, but 
they did it at, at you Jews crucified him at the hands of Romans. So the apostles say that the Jews were just as guilty. And in, in particularly, it's, it's the Jews who have killed their own prophets through history. And that's Jesus's point as well, right? He says, you've killed the prophets and now you're going to kill Messiah. You, you guys are the ones who are the, the guilty ones. Um, and, but then he says, and all the tribes of the earth will wail. And this is why so many people read Revelation and they, oh, the tribes of the earth, see, it's the earth. But no, it's not. That's a bad translation. The word earth is gay in, in Greek. And Earth is one of the translations, but they don't think of the globe like we thought of it, right? Mm. The word for, for gay actually usually meant land or a, a limited territory. And so the the better translation is all the tribes of the land will wail. Well, what does that mean? Well, when an ancient Jew heard the word land, <laughs> he knew that was Israel. The tribes of the land are the tribes of Israel. They are the ones who are going to mourn, see? So this is a judgment on them. And I'm not just making this up arbitrarily, because if you look at the verse that he's quoting, Zechariah 12, 10, where he says this, it defines it as all the tribes of the land. It says, I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for a child and over the firstborn. And then he goes on to describe in the verses after that, that it's it's the tribes of the land of Israel. It's all the all those people from you know the house of David and the house of Nathan and all this. So he's basically saying it's the tribes of the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so now if you go back through Revelation and you change that word earth to land, you'll start to see that the judgment is not on the earth as in the, the globe. It's the judgment on the land of Israel. And that's that's the purpose of revelation. And why? Well, because Jesus said so in Matthew 24, because you will kill the Messiah. Therefore, I'm going to, and now here's the other element of uh, revelation, right? The, the, the harlot that rides the beast versus the bride of Christ. It's two women. The harlot is ultimately apostate Israel who rejects Messiah. And the bride is very clearly defined in Revelation 21 is the body of Christ. The believers in Jesus are the bride of Christ. So Revelation, and you know how when he gets the, um, uh, Jesus opens the scroll, I think that scroll is a scroll of divorce because he's divorcing Israel for being a harlot. Israel is the harlot and being unfaithful and and you know he's going to perform capital punishment on them and what do you require for capital punishment two witnesses revelation 11 two witnesses the law and the prophets they did not they rejected the law and the prophets they killed messiah so now god's going to divorce her kill her at capital punishment and then remarry a new bride the bride of christ the body of christ and that's the new covenant and to me that's the beauty of revelation it's it's talking about this this consummation of the new covenant that that had be was inaugurated at Christ's at the cross of Christ and 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 as the church grew over the next generation of 40 years God transitioned out of that old covenant into the new where he finalized it with that destruction of the temple this is a beautiful powerful story it's not just this you know oh let's figure out what happens and and ooh isn't that exciting and you know but it actually is rooted in a theological message that is beautiful and that message is the kingdom of god the new covenant has been consummated and that's powerful
Back in mind, everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Brian Godwell on talking about eschatology in his book, Remnant. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Andy Bannister back on the show again. And he's going to be talking about his book, An Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran. So we will be looking at Islam next week. For now, let's get back to Brian Godwell talking about his book. Now, Brian, you've said several things. You talk about the divorce of Israel. Israel is a harlot, capital punishment, God judging the Jews for curing the Messiah and such. And some people could be just think, where? Preterism sure sounds like it's anti-Semitical, doesn't it? Yeah, we get that. We've gotten that accusation for decades. And it's it's really sad and pathetic because mm-hmm. essentially this, preterism is saying not that all Jews in history are guilty. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, theologically, you could say everyone's guilty of crucifying Christ, but that's, that yeah. means everyone is the same as anybody else. But that's not the point. The theology of preterism is saying, no, it's the first century generation. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this generation, this is an adulterous generation. Mm-hmm. So in other words, preterism is is actually not saying that modern day Jews are the ones that God hates, et cetera, et cetera. They are just as lost as any other unbeliever. Mm. But it's the first century that Jesus said that they were guilty of killing Messiah, therefore God would judge them. And to which I say, well, not only that, but listen, all the Old Testament prophets, all of them, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they all called Israel a harlot. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And and unfaithful, and that God's going to judge you. So if you're going to have to call Jesus anti-Semitic, you're going to have to call Jeremiah anti-Semitic, Isaiah and Ezekiel are all anti-Semitic, which of course is absurd and ridiculous. And and so the point is, is this isn't anti-Semitic. This is about a very historical uh, generation of people who are guilty for killing Messiah. That doesn't mean all Jews killed the Messiah, yeah. but it does mean that. And here's the other thing. Pretty much most of those futurist, not all of them, but pretty much most of those futurist uh, beliefs, I would argue that uh, most of them believe, and I'm trying to find the passage right now, that Zechariah says that that uh, two-thirds of the Jews in the future will be, will be destroyed uh, by the Antichrist. I can't find the passage right off the top of my head here, but um, most of them do believe that. And it's really interesting because a lot of them said from Hal Lindsey to John Hagee to all these guys, they all say this, that, uh, and, and then at the same time, they're saying, Jews, go back into your land. Let's support the Jews. So they're sending Jews back into the land, knowing full well that they believe there's going to be a massive Holocaust of two thirds of those Jews in Israel being murdered by Antichrist and his forces. To which I say, who's the real anti-Semite here? <laughs> I think it's the person who wants to send Jews back into lands, knowing that they're believing that they're going, two thirds of them are going to be murdered. So I would say that if anything, the futurism tends towards the anti-Semitic view because they actually are the ones that that believe there's a future, you know, Holocaust of Jews that God is going to do on them. Uh, of course, when we say that, I think we also mean we don't mean that in a literalistic sense, as if these futurist teachers really hate Jewish people or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's no. Just that the end no, result I, is the Jews don't turn out very well. Yeah, and, and what I'm saying is, if but I do believe this, that if you're going to make extreme accusations, I'm going to throw them back at you. That's mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely meaning that. Just like Jesus did, right? I mean, Jesus yeah. did that with the Pharisees, and that's what I'm doing. And I, 
Absolutely, I do believe that they're they have um, they have um, good intentions, uh, good intentions, sincere, but the road to hell, right? And mm. uh, sincerity does not prove goodness. And if you really think about the consequence of your beliefs, that the, your beliefs do lead to that, even if you don't recognize it. Mm. And but if you're going to rhetorically, you know, be condemning us as anti semites, I'm going to put it back on you and say, no, you're the anti semite because you're the one who who believes there's a holocaust and you're sending Jews into the holocaust. So, hey, you know, go defend that. <laughs> yeah, I'm being a little rascally there. Now, if we were talking about the news of this week, mainly with Donald Trump and uh, the capital of Israel being moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and someone asked you, Ron, what a prophetic fulfillment do you see here? What would you say? Yeah, I, you know, I don't see any. I, yeah. I just don't. I, I don't. I don't. Because um, I really believe that, you know, the New Testament is very clear that believers in Jesus are his chosen people. And if you reject Jesus, you are not saved from your sin. You are not God's chosen one. So, uh, and we, you know, the whole point of the new covenant is to say it's faith that makes us children of Abraham, nothing else. And so once that's been established, I think that uh, they're they're on the same equal footing as everyone else. And one one of the reasons why is because the whole point of the Jews and the land of Israel and all that stuff and the sacrifices, it was all fulfilled in Messiah. So Jesus was the fulfillment. Jesus is the temple. Jesus Mm -hmm. is the land. Jesus is the inheritance. The inheritance is the land. Jesus is the land. Jesus, Mm -hmm. the Messiah, is all these things. He is the one that brought the two sticks together in Ezekiel. He's the one that brought the 10 tribes back in. You know, you read in the book of Acts, Pentecost, People from ev, you know, Jews from all over the earth, the diaspora were there. Well, that's from the ten tribes, in other words. So the gospel is the thing that brings people, the Gentiles and the Jews from all the ten tribes, into one and as the body of Christ. So once that's fulfilled, and once that's here, the old is gone and dead. So I don't think it has anything to do with it. But here's the interesting thing I'd say is, I find it very supporting of my view that God has not allowed that God destroyed the temple in AD 70, and that's what the Bible says, it says he destroyed it, and that he has not allowed it to be rebuilt. And that's very interesting because that fits my theology that God doesn't, God says the old covenant is permanently gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that he hasn't let it happen. And I don't think it will because it would right. start World War III and we know they're not gonna do that. However, I know that there are also theories out there now that um, by some evangelical futurists who believe that the temple may have been in a different location, so maybe they can rebuild it there or, you know, whatever. Um, but the but the problem is, is that even if they did, it still wouldn't discount my theology. It would just be a dead carcass of a dead religion, mm-hmm. you know, just, just like Baal worshipers built temples to Baal. <laughs> and, you know, in fact, it's interesting because in the book of, in the book of Revelation, the Jews of that century were called Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. So what he's saying is your uh, and there's even a oh I don't have it I don't have it at the top of my head here but there's even a passage in um, in Isaiah where I think it's 51 where God says talks about their sacrifices and how they have become like worshippers of Baal even though they're doing sacrifices on on the temple their sacrifices are like sacrifices to Baal so in other words Revelation is saying uh, the the old covenant system the old covenant worshippers have become like Egypt. Mm-hmm. Sodom 
and Babylon, the three biggest enemies of God. And so consequently, their temples are temples of Baal. And I think that in Revelation, I actually think that might be when he talks about the altar of the beast. I think that that's what he's referring to. He's saying the altar of the Jerusalem temple has become the altar of the beast because it's no longer of God. Mm-hmm. I suppose you know about Julian the Apostate, how he tried to rebuild the temple as I don't well. know the details on that one. Uh, Tell yeah, me. He, he wanted to rebuild the temple because he thought, based on prophecies of Daniel, that that would disprove Christianity because he couldn't stand Christianity. And so he set out, that was his goal, except, strangest thing, he mysteriously died in the middle <laughs> of this, and the project never took place. Uh, it, it's one of the strange facets of history. That is very fascinating. I was not aware of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find it interesting whenever we have Mormons come by and talk to us, because, you know, the Mormons, they go out, they build all their temples, they have all these systems. And guys, you realize you're essentially living under the old covenant when you build all these temples. We don't need them anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is just deeply disturbing to me when modern-day Christians are elevating um, the temple and thinking there's going to be a rebuilt temple and Jesus will rebuild the temple and 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 he will, um, you know, reinstitute sacrifices. This is like this. This is now where we are entering into heretical territory, technically, if you're talking about the theology of it. Because, yes, the Messiah in the Old Testament, it said Messiah would come and build build the temple. And guess what the New Testament says? Mm-hmm. Jesus built the new temple. And here's what he says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens of the members of the household of God. That's the temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The mm-hmm. cornerstone of the building was the foundation of the building. If the building was based on the cornerstone as it was, if the building cornerstone was spiritual, this is where, again, you know, people, oh, you're spiritualizing. Well, Jesus spiritualized because if the cornerstone is spiritual, clearly Jesus is the cornerstone. So then the building has to be spiritual that's built upon him, right? And mm-hmm. it says, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Those are all prophecies of the Old Testament. I would dwell with my people. I, Messiah would rebuild the temple. The New Testament says very clearly that Messiah did rebuild the temple and it is the body of Christ on earth. It is a spiritual temple. And so therefore, uh, to say that there should be a physical temple is literally to return to the old dead system, which I might mind my fellow Christians to consider reading the entire book of Hebrews that should disabuse you of any notice uh, of returning to Torah or returning to sacrifices of any kind because it's very clearly described throughout. And and I think that it, I think it's possible. I, I haven't studied this in depth enough, but it 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 seems to me that the whole point of Hebrews is he's writing to to Christians who are saying we need to go back to, and follow Torah and continue doing the sacrifices, and he's and he's trying to tell them that. Uh, so when he talks about apostatizing, and I I think that he's talking about them. He's saying it's not about like 
oh, you're going to lose your, if you lose your faith in Jesus and fall away, you can't be renewed because you're re-crucifying Christ. No, he's not speaking about unbelief in in general. He's speaking about specifically returning to Torah is to re-crucify Christ. It's to deny the new covenant and to return to the old covenant. And so I think that that's probably what the apostasy is in, in Hebrews. And so his whole thing of Hebrews is literally to say that, look, the temple is about to be destroyed and and already this stuff is already illegitimate and and he says so in this is one of my favorite verses uh Hebrews 8 he talks about um the new covenant and how the new covenant comes in and uh you know replaces the old covenant the first covenant was flawed and the new covenant comes in and then in 8 Hebrews 8:13 it says in speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete Mm-hmm. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And it's interesting because like, what, what does that mean? He says it's obsolete, but then he says it's becoming. It's like it's in process. Remember how I said we're in, they were in the transition period? Until the temple was destroyed, it was fading out, it becoming obsolete, growing old, ready to vanish away. In other words, when the temple was destroyed that's when it would be completely vanished. And he explains this very clearly a few verses later in chapter nine, verse eight, he says, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places in heaven is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. He's talking about the earthly temple there, which is symbolic for the present age. So he's saying that as long as the first temple is still standing and that symbolizes the old present age, that has to be wiped away for the new covenant opening way into the holy place to be consummated. So it's very clear throughout there that, you know, this this return to old covenant sacrifices and, and rituals and stuff is really quite offensive to the living God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's also worthwhile to point out that some people will look at this kind of thinking and say, well, this is replacement theology, the church replacing Israel. And I say, no, it's not replacement theology, it's expansion theology. There is yes. still one tree, one tree, Messiah. Anyone can come in. You don't get special perks of a Messiah because you're Jewish. Everyone comes the exact same way through Jesus, and now Jews and Gentiles both can come in. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's very clear that that that's what Paul is talking about, and it's just ridiculous to even think. In other words, the church is the Israel of God. It's not replaces it. It just is. In other words, in the Old Testament, the true remnant believers in Israel were the church. And guess what? It's another one of those bad translations the word church is ecclesia in Greek in the New Covenant. When we read that, we tend to think of the church as in church buildings, right? And we think of it as this special, different, this is a different entity than what yeah. the synagogue was or yeah, whatever. Yeah, there was a mythicist writer named David Fitzgerald who'd said that when when, when Jesus said to Peter upon this rock, I would build my church, that uh, Peter said, church, what's that? And I'm thinking, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, yeah. Actually, the word is the same word that's used in the old Greek Old Covenant, Old Testament, for the assembly of God, mm-hmm. meaning the congregation of God, which was 
Israel. So in other words, he's saying, I will build my congregation, the true congregation of God, the true Israel uh, upon this rock, right? And and so church was not a different word from, uh, now synagogue is, but synagogue was not biblical. Synagogue was not commanded in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not saying that God condemned them, Jesus right. went to synagogue, but it certainly was not the uh, original Old Testament intention. Uh, so yeah, so even the separation of the church uh, from Israel is just not borne out in the text. You're right, mm-hmm. and and I think it 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 gets worse because if you think about it, those who are claiming replacement theology are actually arguing postponement theology, which is they're saying that all the promises of God were not fulfilled in Christ, and they've been postponed because there's a parenthesis period now. And actually, the futurists believe in replacement theology. They believe that that the church replaces Israel Israel for now. Until Israel comes back into the plan, see? So they're the ones who actually believe in replacement theology as if there's a, God is dealing with a separate body of, of the church now during the parenthesis until the end times occurs. And then he, he brings back Israel and they become the focus of his plan. So that's a replacement theology in my opinion. Mind everyone, you're listening to the People Waters podcast, and everything we do here it's listener supported by people just like you. And you know, we really could use your support. And we are getting close to the end of the year, which all of you should know that means end of the year giving here. So, if you want those special tax write offs and such, you know, that's another good reason to give for us. Now, if you want to give to the Ministry of Deeper Waters, Go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a a thing on the side that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, where you go there, and you receive that you get taken to the ministry of risen Jesus. You've still gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation through risen Jesus, and then you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Ari, one of us, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure that we get your donation, and it will be tax deductible. We'll get every penny of it, and we always try to use it to the best that we can here. And uh, you can also go on Amazon and buy some ebooks. one that I've written, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, and some that I have co-written, Defining Inerrancy, which could be quite relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers of This Generation's Questions. And there's still another way that we've got set up that you can give to us, and that's through the purchase of jewelry. Guys, some of you might want to be like I was and decide that, you know what? Christmas is a really great time to pop that question, which is exactly what I did. And so you can go and you can uh, 
was like, yeah, I propose to Ari on Christmas Eve. Very, very romantic here. You can go to uh, our female jewelry store and you can buy some jewelry for that special lady of your life. Maybe you're not popping a question. Maybe it's for your wife or your girlfriend or something of that sort. And if it's for your girlfriend, maybe you're not ready to pop it yet, but you're preparing to. But um, you can go and you can buy some jewelry for that woman in your life. Whatever you buy, 25% of it goes to deeper waters. So uh, you can go and you can buy something. And like I say, you can buy something for that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future. And also, if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. Now, Brian, do you have an organization or charity you like to see people donate to? Well, um, yeah, one of my biggest uh, ministries that I support is Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF.org, Alliance Defending Freedom. And they are a Christian legal firm that has been involved in very key um, uh, legal disputes around the country. In fact, they're one of the uh, lawyers involved in the current case before the Supreme Court about the Christian Baker, which is very, very significant. These guys are protecting Christians from persecution in America using legal means, and, and they're just phenomenal, great great people and they're defending us. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a little selfish. If you support them, you're actually helping protect yourself. So, uh, but I, I recommend them. Is that Jay Sokolow? No, it's okay. not. It's okay. a different, it's a different organization. I like, I, I support Jay too, by the way, but uh, okay. these guys are, are my personal favorites. Okay. Well, let's talk about something else with the book here. And that's better. And this is one that me and New Testament scholars might bark at even. And that's the suggestion that Revelation was written before 70 AD. Most people do place it in the 90s. Even a lot of conservative evangelical scholars place it in the 90s. And it is a minority position to place it at the time frame you've placed that. So why do that? Yeah, that's true. Uh, although there is a uh, rising scholarship is starting to turn and uh, actually support the earlier date, you know. And um, but there are very some very key uh, scholars, in, in, um, very re reputable scholars who who have supported the early date with some very good reasoning. One of them you can get his book free is uh, J. A. T. Robinson, who was a liberal, but mm -hmm. he argued that all the books of the Bible were written before A.D. seventy, and um, uh, and he's so he's. He doesn't have an agenda, is my point. And um, his book on is on. You can get it free online somewhere. Redating the New Testament, mm -hmm. but the best book to get is actually free. You can get it at my website, Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com, and you know, go to the Chronicles of the Apocalypse section, which is all these novels, and then I have a little link there for scholarship or scholarly articles. And in that, I give a bunch of free articles and books that you can get online. And one of those books is called Before Jerusalem Fell by Kenneth Gentry. Mm -hmm. And um, it, is the, it is the premier book that defends the early date of Revelation in the face of these you know, accusations of the late date. But basically, it, <laughs> here's the irony. You look at, yeah, there's a lot of people that, that a lot of people in antiquity that, that argue a late date but they all are quoting one guy. It all goes back to one guy, and that's Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. And there's this one weird passage where Irenaeus, so I'm trying to see if I can find the, uh, if I can find the book, I'm a little, I didn't know you are gonna bring this up, so I don't necessarily have it right with me, but um, there's a passage where Irenaeus is, is dis talking about the dispute about what 666 means, you know, and, he's, and he says, you know, basically, um, he's saying, well, you know, you can find out what it means or whatever, because, uh, 
uh, you know, we know the Apostle John wrote it, and it says, uh, and it was seen uh, in, in the, uh, during the time of Domitian, something like that. It was seen during the time of Domitian. And the problem is, is that the Greek of that statement is very ambiguous. And all honest scholarship scholars will admit that it could be interpreted one of two ways. It could be interpreted that he's saying, uh, John was seen during the, mm-hmm. the, the time of, Reve- I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, John was seen during the time of Revelation or the Revelation was seen during the time of Domitian. John was seen during the time of Domitian or the Revelation was seen during the time of Domitian. So the truth is, is either way is possible. And that of course depends on whether or not you believe in the late date or early date. But I would argue that if you look at the context of his passage, I think the early date is, is, is more likely, he's more likely he's saying that, um, John was seen during the time of Domitian because he's saying, if you want to know, you wanted to figure out what the people are arguing about what 666 means, well, they could have gone and asked John because he was still around during the time of Domitian. That was the point, see? Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't think it would have made as much sense the other way. But basically, that's the one, that's the only statement that they, not the only, but I mean, that's the strongest statement that they have, the, the earliest to support them. So the truth is, is that nobody really knows. And therefore, I would argue that as Christians, um, I think that we should put more weight on the internal evidence of revelation rather mm-hmm. than external evidence, because if we believe the Bible's word of God, you know, um, so so these things that you and I already mentioned, John said they were in the middle of the tribulation. John indicated that there was the time of Nero was the sixth king. You know what I'm saying? All these mm-hmm. things that indicate that the temple had not been destroyed yet, um, coupled with the fact that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, in John, in the Gospel, he's when he talks about resurrection and stuff, and Jesus talking about you know destroying this building, whatever. He says, "Oh, yeah, he was actually speaking about the, his body, the resurrection of which would happen later." So John clearly, when he's referring to something that's happened in the past that has some meaning, he says, "Oh, he was talking about his resurrection, which hadn't happened yet." So he has no problem saying that. So if if this was if Revelation was written after the temple was destroyed, he would have made some reference to that. Now you know people say well, that's an argument from silence, and technically it is, yeah. But the problem is, is so is the argument that the temple that John describes in Revelation eleven, go measure the temple. They assume well that that's a future rebuilt one. Well, how do you know it's rebuilt? Mm-hmm. There was no, it was, if it wasn't destroyed, why would he even have to say that, oh, this is a different temple? He doesn't have to because they would assume it's the temple of that time, right? And so either, but I can understand how you can say, well, if the temple was destroyed and it shows up in this vision, then it's a future temple, but that's still an argument from silence as well. So the problem is, is that, is it more likely that John would at least refer to this major destruction that changed the world mm-hmm. if when he's talking so much about this future temple yeah. destruction? Of course he would, but he didn't. And so, yeah, I, I just think it's pretty clear that that he probably wrote the um, Gentry argues that he probably wrote the letter between 61 to 66 or something like that, probably 65. That's what I put in my books that he wrote around 65. The reason why I say that is if if the tribulation began with the persecution of the Christians under Nero, that started in AD 64. So John has to already believe that there, the, the tribulation is already underway. So therefore, six, after 64, it would probably be the case. You know, this is what I'm, this is what I'm thinking. Um, so that's why I put it around 65. But of course, uh, lots of other stuff hadn't happened yet. So um, 66 was when the revolt of the Jews started. 67 was when he sent, uh, Nero sent the armies 
to destroy. So it happened. It had to have happened before that. That's why 65 is about the best, in my opinion, the best uh, date to figure it was written. Yeah. And, you know, I got into this with some futurists just last night. We ended up talking about Second Thessalonians 2. And he started talking about the temporal veil. I said, I was going to tell you this, but when Paul writes about temporal, I don't think there's any reason to think the Thessalonians would have thought about this third temporal way off in the future. They would have thought, this temporal right here. Yes. He would have clearly made reference to some future temple if it because w- it would be very relevant to the interpretation, I would think. Again, that's an argument from silence, but in some cases, silence is not an invalid argument. Uh, in some cases, silence works better depending on the the context. You know what I'm saying? Because in other words, it makes more sense for people to be silent in certain situations than in others. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the argument I would I would make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, for instance, that the the thing about silence is that you know when when my mentor said to me, where silence is expected, the argument from silence is weak, and if someone wrote a biography about me years in the future and they never mentioned Ari, you could say, well, geez, he probably wasn't married at all. But they'd be wrong. And I'd wonder why on earth did a biographer make such a huge oversight like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly my point is that um, unless you're going to accuse John of being a poor writer, and which I don't think he is, or God, because he's simply transcribing the visions he saw, right? So you're telling me God ha- doesn't care at all about the fact that the temple is, was destroyed? Excuse mm-hmm. me? You yeah. know, I mean, that's ridiculous. So, Yeah, and you know, I think also it comes back to our lack of understanding what went on. I mean, I don't think many people really realize just how— horrible a time the destruction of Jerusalem was. Oh, yeah. That's that's the thing I want to make come alive in my novels. People have said that they're very, woo, they're kind of harsh because of the brutality that was going on. I want to capture that because we are such wimps. We are such snowflakes in this society, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're worried about people like using the wrong pronouns and, oh, you make me feel bad and, and all this kind of baloney. And like, there, people, women were raped on on mass. You know, when when the Romans would mm-hmm. you know conquer something, they would rape the women before killing them, and they would also kill the women and children, and you know all these things. And, and like you said, um, or like I said earlier, you know, Christians were thrown to the lions. Christ, um, Nero made human torches out of Christians, covered their bodies in pitch, hung them on poles, and lit them to, lit them up in the night for uh, along his palace. You know, and these kinds of things, and you know, he would he would put Christians into um, into the uh, into the arena and have wild be and put um, like animal skins on top of them, and then have wild beasts like you know bears and lions go after them and tear them apart, and wild dogs and stuff. He would even he would even play out. Uh, certain pagan plays about the you know like there's a there was a a a, a pagan myth about uh, dogs tearing apart the body of S- uh, Circe I think it was you know so he would do the Circe myth and and the Christians would be you know dressed up like Circe and have the dogs go after them so he just really it was really a sick sick time and and a much more brutal time than what we live in and I think we need to be aware of that and we need to be educated on that. 
um, to know how good we really have it, how much the world has gotten better, even since as bad as it is, I'm not denying that, yeah. but but it certainly is is way better for for Christians in general. Now, obviously, Christians under Muslim rule are are being persecuted, but that's all stuff that we have to work at getting rid of and <laughs> putting it away, you know, as the kingdom of God grows. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth our point that there used to be a whole lot more trees in the area of Israel cut down yeah. because they were crucifying so many of the Jews left yes. and right. And there were times also that many Jews knew what was coming and they'd try and get out, but they wouldn't take their value bars with them. So they'd swallow things like jewels and such because, you know, they figured they'd just poop them out later and they'd get them that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the Romans found out about us. They killed them, cut them open, took the jewels, and went on their way then. Sometimes they would cut their bellies open while they're live. Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't even care. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. And by the way, I have all that in my novels as well. I, I show how they're crucifying thousands of Jews in response. You know, it was back and forth sort of thing because uh, Gessius Florus at the time was one of the governors – uh, he was the, the governor at that time in, in Israel, and he wanted to start the – in fact, Josephus argues that it was his fault that the war started. It was his – he was like goading on war. He wanted to start the war, so he would have all these armed conflicts, and you know, he would bring the – he brought uh, an army of – a small army of uh, Roman soldiers into the temp- the holy temple – to, to steal 17 talents of gold to help pay for uh, taxes for Rome un, uh, under the guise of that, right? Well, that's the, that's the most mm-hmm. abominable thing that could possibly uh, occur to the Jews. And then they, re, you know, and he did it deliberately to provoke them. And of course they did. They responded by, you know, killing a, a bunch of, and there was, a, there was a whole riot in Caesarea Philippi, you know, as a result of that. So this kind of stuff went back and forth. And then um, some, it, it is possible that he was a major instigation of bringing, of starting the revolt of the Jews because he wanted to destroy Israel. And the way he could do that was to provoke them to rise up against Rome. And then he knew that Caesar would then send mm-hmm. uh, the Roman armies and destroy them. And that's that that's what happened. So that, that's a possible uh, – he's definitely one of the significant elements in that whole destruction. Um, and it was – you're right. It was massive. Like you know, jo- Josephus said about – what was it? I think like a million – uh, at least a million Jews were killed, and, and in hundreds. The end, of th- you would never know a city was there. Yeah, 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 and a, a hundreds of thousands were taken off into slavery. Jews, right? Mm-hmm. So this was massive. It, yeah. it was horrible. Now, I noticed you refer to it as something abominable and such, <laughs> and I can't but wonder if you think that ties in with, say, the abomination that causes desolation, or the man of lawlessness figure in Second Thessalonians two. Yeah, you know the um, when Jesus says the abomination, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, standing in where it ought not, then flee to the mountains. That's in Matthew twenty four fifteen. So that's another one of those verses that so many Christians just assume that well that can't possibly have happened, right? But of course, it's interesting because when you, the abomination of desolation of Daniel, you go back and study Daniel, and you see it's not as outrageous as you think, but. I think the best thing is is that, well, if you want to know what the abomination of desolation is, don't you think that the apostolic authors of the Bible would be the premier interpreters of what that means? Mm-hmm. I would think so. Well, guess what? Luke, in chapter 21, verse 20, is writing about he's, – he's, 
he's writing to mostly Greeks, so he's not. Matthew uses a lot more Jewish imagery, like abomination of desolation. Right? Greeks may not know what that means. So Luke is giving the same sermon that Jesus gave, but he describes it in simpler terms. And this is what he says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near, flee to the mountains. So Luke is basically exegeting Jesus's words, abomination of desolation speaking in the holy place is Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Jerusalem was the holy place. Jerusalem was the holy city. So for Roman armies to be surrounding it would be an abominable desolation. It would be an abomination for pagans to to a pagan army to uh, be in, in, in where it ought not in a holy situation in a holy place like uh, surrounding the city. Right, the city's holy, and then it would desolate that city. So that's pretty much you know that fits in with all of this stuff, and it's not that you know, futuristic as people may originally assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting whenever I engage them, it's, can we say, well, who do you think is the man of lawlessness? You know, there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of theories on that and such. Yeah. And it, there seems to be this strange argument of saying, well, unless you can demonstrate exactly who it is, my yeah. interpretation of the passage is correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, no, you're right. And and I'll admit that, you know, Man of Lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 is a difficult one. And I, you know, I have a view of it, but I'm I'm open. I'm It may be wrong because I've heard other views that sort of made some sense. But I follow Gentry's view on this, which, by the way, uh, you can get a free art, scholarly article by Gentry who explains 2 Thessalonians 2 on my website at the scholarly page, right, on the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And, and anyway, he he argues that the man of lawlessness is Nero. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the fascinating uh, arguments that he makes is that when Paul was writing this, you know, Thessalonians, I think, is one of the – is it one of the earlier letters? I think it is. Yeah, some um, scholars think first Thessalonians could have been the first of a Pauline epistles written. That's right. Okay, and – possibly written under the reign of Claudius. Now, mm-hmm. here's one of the interesting things. This is just a little tidbit, but there's two tidbits that I think are very significant. And he says, you know, don't let anyone deceive you for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Many people, or some translations say the apostasy, but the problem is that the Greek word there is a falling away, but it, it can have both meaning of religious apostasy or a physical rebellion. And it's interesting that that word that Greek word, which is apostasia. It's the same word that Josephus uses to describe the war of the Jews. So in fact, that that word probably is better translated unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And it says that this mystery is already at work, but only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. These are all really hard to understand things, but uh, Gentry makes the argument, which I think is very fascinating, the word he who now restrains is very much a uh, wordplay on Claudi- on the name for Claudius. Claudius means to restrain or to cover, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he who now restrains might be a poetic sort of reference to the fact that it, Claudius, Nero was Claudius's nephew. Mm-hmm. And Nero would, all, was at the time, he obviously Claudius was the emperor. So in other words, I think he might be indicating here that Claudius being Caesar, is the one that keeps that man of lawlessness from coming to power. As long as Claudius is alive, Nero won't become emperor, and that's good. Uh, but as soon as he's done out of the way, as soon as Claudius dies, well, then eventually 
you know, Nero would end up becoming the emperor eventually. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, there's those little things, but, you know, I don't know. I, so I follow that. I follow that tack for now, but I'm open to other views. Yeah, I've actually heard some futurists say the falling away is actually for rapture. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because, wait a minute, falling away is not being pulled up. <laughs> yeah. Falling away cannot be the rapture. It's the opposite of the rapture, actually. You know, to go back to what we were saying about what's being taught in the churches and such earlier on the show, I mean, if a pastor really believes in futurism, I have no problem with him preaching it from a pulpit. If he's mm-hmm. really convinced of what the Bible says, he should. Yep. But at the same time, I think, though, if any pastor is out there and they're making prophecy predictions and they are wrong, which they are, yeah. the church needs to stand up and start holding these people accountable and saying, no, you have to publicly repent of what you did. And we need to do the same with all these people that are writing these books that are gathering dust from the back I agree. bookstores because we are not holding them accountable. You know what? You know what we need? We need to have a uh, we need to have a hashtag Me Too uh, for for these guys. No, really. You know that's really that's really instructive, yeah. Nick. Um, you know, in the same way that now Hollywood is finally standing up, standing up and saying, "No more. We will not accept this sexual harassment anymore. We're gonna out. We're gonna support women. Women are gonna come out and tell their stories, and we're gonna make these men accountable because we've let them go on for too long." I think we need that in the Christian church. We need mm-hmm. we need to follow Hollywood. You know, yeah. we need to say no more. Uh, you know, John Hagee and his blood moons or wrong. Yep. Hal Lindsey was wrong. Hal Lindsey, you know, 35 years ago was, became super, super rich, like multi, multi-millionaire. And, and, and they were asked, well, what if you're wrong? And he says, well, I guess there's a split second between um, a hero and a bum. And it, so if he was wrong, he's a bum. Well, he is a bum, and, but he still has a ministry and people are still following him. And that should not be. People mm. should not be following this guy. And they should hold this guy to account for all the false pr- prophecies about Jesus coming in the, in, in the generation of the 1980s. Or n- not generation, but you know, uh, by, the end of, by 1988, roughly. Uh, that's what he was predicting. And, uh, but they still let him still let him have his mystery. And John Hagee's been wrong about the blood moons, right? Mm-hmm. And then, the, but then they just keep twisting it and saying, well, no, but something else, you know, I don't, you know, they just twist it in so many different ways. Yeah. You can't even keep up with them. I mean, if we were at a church and the pastor was guilty of having an affair, for instance, yeah. the church would immediately call him to account or they better and say, we are not going to let you preach here if you are misrepresenting things with your moral lifestyle, where yeah. shouldn't we do the same when people say, with prophecy, this is what God has said, and it becomes clear, God has not said. I mean, this is not just getting something wrong on a peripheral issue. This is a huge misrepresentation of God, and it embarrasses us to a yeah. non-Christian world that looks and sees this kind of stuff as sadly normative, and sadly, they're right. Yeah, and Sadly, what I think is these these guys all know this, and they're also very clever. They they'll write things like, "Could it be that these blood, you know, whatever? Could it be that September twenty third could be the fulfillment? Is it possible? Is this the fulfillment of you know?" So they you know they phrase it in questions so they can say. Oh, I never said that it was. I said it could possibly be. I never said Jesus was coming, you know, but in a specific time period. I just said he could come in our generation. You know, all this kind of stuff 
they're trying to sort of hedge their bets in CYA because they know that when they're wrong, you know, uh, they're, it's easier to, to be able to say, well, I never said it was literally that, you know. So only there's only a few fools that come out and literally try to make a specific predictions clear. But my, you know, like, uh, you know, Edgar Wisenant, when he said, you know, he wrote the yeah. book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 88. Okay, yeah. those are the easy ones. But the more clever ones, I think, in in a way they're more deceptive and we they're still just as guilty of predicting just because you do it with clever language doesn't mean you're not predicting mm-hmm. and that's my argument about those people so i agree yeah they should be yeah, taken I, into account i remember september 23rd very well because i mean i knew so many people who were we've been watching on youtube they were just watching that day with something big happening and well i remember about that day that was batman day Actually, <laughs> and I remember going to the mall and ordering my wife a special Harley Quinn bear from Build a Bear because she loves Harley Quinn so much. And it was the only day it was available, and I wanted to give something very special to put a smile on her face. And but, so that's what I'd done. And we came back and just talking with some of my friends, saying, "Well, nothing's happened. Isn't isn't that a shock?" And of course, then I remember that being followed by all these people on YouTube who made all these videos coming out and publicly repenting and saying, hey, sorry, we were wrong, we were oh, oh, wait, that, that last part never happened, did it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know what it's going to take, man. I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so, it's so loud to me that this is so irresponsible, what they're saying and doing, mm-hmm. and um, I just don't know. And, and I mean, the thing is, though, we we do have issues with eschatology and how you view your eschatology does change a lot of things for Christianity. I mean, it really does come down to what did Jesus do as his covenant? Did he complete it or not? And you know, I'm not saying these people are intentionally denying the gospel or anything, but you have to right. say it does change the message some when you look at it and you say, well, Jesus didn't do everything then. And then you, also, when you ask the question, is Jesus king of this earth right now? And I was there and say, yep, he absolutely is. And some of you say, no, no, not yet. Yeah, I've, I've had people argue that with me. And look, I think even more significant is it, it affects your view of the kingdom of God. Because mm-hmm. even just, I, I was reading another uh, comment about someone critiquing or criticizing my book. And they're saying, he takes away the hope, the blessed hope of the rapture. This is terrible. And and I'm thinking, this is what these people look for. This is what they this is what their heart is set on, this selfish, selfish, selfish um freedom from suffering mm-hmm. to get away from, rather than focusing on the kingdom of God and bringing the gospel to the nations. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So what it is, is instead of seeing our kingdom is here, it's growing on the earth like a mustard seed. It's that mountain. It's that cornerstone that hit the Roman statue, the statue at the Roman feet, right? And it says it will grow to build uh, to a mountain to fill the earth, right? And and we are, this is the kingdom of God that we're a part of. And we should be excited about, you know, seeing Christ is victorious. Greater is he is in you than he is in the world. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of David in heaven right now that gives us the power of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to preach the gospel, to get people saved, to draw them into the kingdom of God, which is Isaiah 2, drawing them to the Mount Zion. That's That's what the gospel does. That's what we should be excited about. Not 
figuring out who's the antichrist and yeah. you know all this kind of stuff and, yeah. and that's that's the problem that that I mm-hmm. I think you're right I think our view of the end times can affect us very detrimentally in how we're living our Christian lives now there was a church Ari and I attended for a while back in Knoxville and we we remember very well being in small group once and hearing this lady in the middle of small group say well you know what I'm saved my children are saved. I'm just going to sit back and wait for Jesus to come. I was like, my gosh, seriously? I mean, for yeah. one thing, your children could then this way come home from college and be atheists. And then yeah. what about that? And then what about your neighbor's children? What's going to happen to them? I mean, it, it, it's yes. just what individual says, we have to look out for number one, for our safety, everything. We should not be. We should not be spending our time obsessively trying to trying to uh, trying to find the antichrist. We should be obsessively trying to to glorify yep. our King King Jesus Christ. You yep. know, what yeah. a difference. Yeah, what I, a difference. I, I refer to it as kind of a pin the tail on the antichrist, and I say, you know, I really wish more Christians would spend a whole lot of time thinking about who Christ is, and you do about who the Antichrist is. I mean, if I mean, I'm not going to fault people for holding to a futuristic view of the Antichrist. Yeah. I think it's wrong and such. I mean, my right. wife still holds to that view. I'm not going to say, well, geez, you just don't know what you're talking about. I can understand how they get it and such. Yes. But at the yes. same time, it is a difference between thinking there's a future Antichrist and saying, now I'm going to tell you exactly who he is. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, I, I mean, I've been on a lot of shows, a lot of Christian podcasts, and some of them are futurists, and yeah. they've been kind enough to let me espouse my view, you know, and give my yeah. my opinion. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And and quite frankly, and I tell these guys all the time, and I've on their shows, I've even said, it's like, you know, look, um, I do like a lot of the research they do. They're, you know, like mm-hmm. they're uncovering a lot of, you know, demonic things going on in the world, whether they're, you know, whether they're uh, researching CERN, the CERN collider, or, uh, you know, some of them are into Illuminati stuff, but not all of them. But mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are just, you know, looking about into g- genetic manipulation and they're trying to find connections to Bible prophecy that I don't agree are there. Okay, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean I don't agree with. The, some of the facts that they're uncovering, you know? Yeah. And and so I tell them, I'm like, look, I, I agree with you that we should fight tyrants and not let tyranny rule. That doesn't mean that it's the Antichrist, but I would agree with you that, you know, uh, it, placing a chip in, in our hands that has all of our information on it, I would fight against it with you, not because I think it's the, the mark of the beast. It's not, but it's just it's just a pathway to tyranny is what it is. And so, uh, you know, evil is still evil. It doesn't have to fulfill Bible prophecy to be something that's evil. And so in that way, I I appreciate some of these guys' research, this really amazing stuff, you know, and DNA research and, you know, hybridization and all this kind of wild stuff and some of the dark motives that are going on Mm. uh, behind the curtains and stuff in in today's political world. Mm. You know, some of that stuff is good. Some of it's conspiracy stuff, but, you know, so... I agree with you. You know, it's like, okay, I, I mean, I can see where you get it. And look, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So I'm yeah. going to be careful not to damn what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to agree with you on a lot of the evil is evil and let's fight it together, you know? Yeah. When I lived in Charlotte, I was part of a church, but I was very, very well respected that. And I remember being asked once to help provide out the curriculum. And that included some kind of statement of faith. And here we're talking about how we're going to handle doctrinal issues and such, someone says, wait, someone on my very staff that working with me says, well, you know, 
we somewhat some people could come in with some viewpoints. I mean, imagine what if we had like a preterist in here, for instance, <laughs> and I just look at him and say, "I'm a preterist," <laughs> and <laughs> that was just so much. unexpected. But our church, thankfully, they dropped pre premier dispensationalism, pre tribulationism from the statement of faithful church because we were there. My, me and my roommate at the time, and they knew we disagreed. And at one point, they even said to me, said, you know, we, we know you got a different viewpoint. Well, how would you like to use our teaching time and tell us what your viewpoint is? Fantastic. And, they, yeah, and they set a date for me, and here's what else I did. I was in a seminary at the time. I went to the seminary. My seminary was a futurist seminary. I got the best books I could find on futurism at the time and read through them. I said, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. I was still fairly unconvinced, but I did get to go and have a good talk. I don't know if anyone converted to Orthodox preterism, but you know what? People got to listen, and that is really what needs to be held. And you know, when my wife has asked me some questions before, I'll tell her my position from a preterism, but then she'll say, what would someone from my position of futurism <laughs> say? And I will try to give her the best answer I can. I don't try and give an answer that makes futurism look ridiculous. That would be right. wrong. I want to give her the best one I can. If she comes to this, she comes on her own. That's cool. That's great. I, I love it. Your wife lets you do all the hard lifting. <laughs> what, what would people of my position say? <laughs> uh, I, I don't mind it. She knows I'm the research type. So. I'm like that too. I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a research junkie, so I'm the guy that does all that work. She Sometimes my wife will ask me, so what? what is it we believe now? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, right now, what I believe is we've come to the end of our show, so we got to start wrapping things up here. Um, I know you've already said this a few times, so let's remind people. Do you have a blog, an email, a website people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yeah, it's all at Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. And it's not a boring website. I got a lot of cool stuff yeah. there, a lot of free articles, a lot of mm -hmm. cool artwork related to all my books, information on the books if you want to look into them before you buy them. And then all my <laughs> books are all in Kindle, paperback and audiobook at Amazon. I'm exclusively with Amazon so you can get everything there, but uh, if you want to look find out a little bit more about me before you you know go and buy something, uh, my website has everything about me you, you could want to know. Yeah. And the book that we've talked about here is Remnant looking online the paperback version of it on Amazon right now is 1976. The Kindle edition is 777. I'm guessing that's intentional. Yeah, because the first book, Tyrant, which was about Nero the Beast, that price was $6.66. <laughs> so I thought Remnant, which is about God's people, I thought I'd make that seven seventy seven. Yeah, uh, some versions of Amazon had it at $6.16. Ah, that's a good one, Nick. That's a good one. Only insiders know that joke. Yeah, yeah it, if some of you don't get that one, look it up or come ask me. I will explain it. Yeah, uh, the, the Latin, the Latin uh, Amazon in, yeah. in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> now, do uh, you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters audience? No, but just thanks for this time. It's a, I, I hope that I hope that was helpful and challenging and stimulating. And um, you know, uh, oh, it, you know, I would just say this too. You know, especially if you've been listening, if you've made it this far, um, you're interested enough. But still, you know, don't worry about get get my novels. I think even if you don't agree with the viewpoint, I, I 
trust me, you're going to love the history stuff. You're going to love the biblical stuff. Mm-hmm. And you, I've had people who say, I don't agree with this view, but I really enjoy reading the novels because they're very helpful and informative. So you don't have to, don't, don't be afraid of it. Don't be yeah. worried. You know, am I going to, you know, persuade you or something? Because you can read it and appreciate a lot from it and not have to agree with everything. Uh, but I definitely guarantee you, you will be entertained and yeah. stimulated. You know, I can say I even do that for watcher aspect right now. I can't say I agree yet, but I'm yeah. entertained by it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Now, uh, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Andy Bannister on talking about his book, The Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran. Very in depth academic next week here. For now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off. <laughs>